You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 15th of April 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. It feels special because, uh, you know, the golf was not really in my life. You know, playing competitively, I couldn't even putt. So um, to be able to have the opportunity to come back and, and play again. Tiger Woods wins a thing after many years of not winning a thing. Are we, as a species, too easily seduced by the comeback redemption narrative? My guests Joy Ladico and Robert Fox will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Libya's descent into whatever it is Libya is descending into, Emmanuel Macron's plans for placating the yellow vests, and Finland becomes the latest electorate to vacate the centre ground. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Joy Ladico, columnist at the Evening Standard, and Robert Fox, defence editor at the Evening Standard. Uh, welcome both to the programme, and we will start tonight in Libya, where so far as it is possible to tell, the country's officially recognised government, such as it is, is increasingly besieged by the country's not officially recognised government, such as that is. Fighting is continuing between forces loyal to the government, based in Tripoli, and militias commanded by renegade military officer Khalifa Haftar who appears to believe that Libya has for too long been a pair of competing anarchic messes and is therefore intent on uniting Libya into a single anarchic mess. Over the weekend, Haftar found time to visit Cairo for what seemed a sympathetic audience with the Egyptian dictator Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Um, Robert, is it yet clear uh, where Haftar thinks he's going with this? Last week there was a general consensus that he was interested in either distracting from or altogether sabotaging planned people peace talks, um, but he appears to be still at it. He's quite an old guy. He's in his 70s. And You're suggesting he's in a hurry. And he's in a, he's in a big hurry. Yeah, you got there before. He's in a big hurry. And I think, though, he wants to emulate his uh, erstwhile master, and then he fell out with him, uh, Muammar Gaddafi. He wants to take over the whole country and really run the two big centres, which have been asunder since uh, uh, the fall of Gaddafi and a little bit before, uh, Benghazi and, and, and Tripoli. Um, will he do it? The answer is... No, because he just doesn't have enough force. And hence the visit to Sisi to say, look, I've got so far, I've got stuck outside uh, Tripoli. I've got, we're, we're bombing each other a bit, but we've got very ancient air forces. I've got all these pledges of support, uh, amazingly, well, from the Gulf, from the UAE, from MBZ and MBS in uh, Mohammed bin uh, Salman, Mohammed bin Zaid of the UAE and Saudi Arabia are behind me and France seems to have been holding the towel outside the ring, but saying, yeah, get on with it. And the only people who are really giving the gypsy warning about it are Sismi, the Italian, not so very secret, military intelligence. And they're pretty darn good. They know Libya probably better than any European agency. And they say, this is a big mess. And we have got 
uh, a lot of people coming our way. Uh, the militias are going to fight like dogs and cats in Tripoli because they are the big people smugglers. It is what um, they say in Italian is a gran pasticcio. <laughs> <laughs> um, Joy, do we yet understand uh, what uh, Khalifa Haftar's supporters, who, as Robert points out, include Egypt, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and weirdly France, um, actually want him to do? Um, I'm not sure they've explicitly said what they want him to do, but I think France has a particular interest in oil assets uh, in the south of the country. And for them to just give up on Haftar means endless negotiations with various oil companies, oil deals and resorting that out. Russia has um, an interest because of arms and arms sales. And, you know, there's nothing like a a, a good fight in a a relatively small country for Russia not to want to get involved. there seems to be, and correct me if I'm wrong, wrong Robert, because you're the expert on this, but a lot of it seems to be lining up in some senses against the Qataris who are supporting um, the established government in Tripoli. So, in fact, this has all become a kind of proxy situation and Haftar is getting a huge amount of support in order for people to line up actually against another group within um, the uh, within the Arab Peninsula. Uh, what do they hope to achieve out of it? Well, I mean, dominance, territory, influence, and so forth. And they uh, haven't really got that at the moment. It's funny that they, the, 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 the Qataris come up in, the, in, in, in this way and then try and squash them like a fly. Uh, the clique round Mohammed bin Salman actually wanted to invade uh, Qatar about three or four years back, which is a, a bit crazy. Think about Qatar. Is it, it's incredibly rich and has disposable income, which the other two, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, curiously, don't have to such an extent because they're overcommitted. And the Qataris have a certain kind of military expertise. And what the, the dog that hasn't barked, of course, are the Brits who've been involved there. And the Brits' special forces and the Qatari special forces, um, cheek by cheek, when Gaddafi's stronghold fell, it was the Qatari Special Forces in 2011 that took it, guided under British direction, uh, not generally known. I'd like quickly to pick up on France. I think France, I agree, because one thing that Haftar has is the oil in the east and the oil in the south, and the, and the, the, the oil price has gone crazy. And that's why he thought he got a bit of a nod and a wink from Trump to stabilise oil prices. France is looking at the Maghreb as a whole because it is very, very worried about Libya going soft, Tunisia always very dodgy, and there is a huge crisis potentially, and the French have spotted this now for a couple of years, coming up uh, with with Bouteflika now departing the scene and the military strongman from Algeria. Potentially five million French passport or claimants to French citizenship or or, or a passport in in Algeria itself now. Um, Think what that means. Is it surprising that the the nominal allies uh, of the government in Tripoli, which is supposed to be everybody because it is the officially (laughs) recognised government of Libya, have been weirdly quiet the last four or five days? Should the the government in Tripoli be starting to get a little bit nervous? Well, it's extraordinary to actually have a kind of a UN-backed government with a sort of peace conference going on and not have 
all the major powers within the UN standing up and saying, "This is we've we've agreed this, we've established this. This has been going on for years now. You know, we're it's a transitional government. We're hoping to have elections later this year. Of course, we back it." Everybody said, "Well, actually, it's a pretty much an insoluble country, and it's something over and over again that's happened with Libya, which is you have these two central strongholds, and one is important as important as the other, and nobody's got the teeth for a fight to get rid of Haftar. So why would you therefore stake your reputation on it?" And that's why it all goes a bit quiet. I mean, I think it's only the Italians who really kind of put their head above the parapet about it. But in a similar, similar to your point about Tunisia, uh, Italy gets the um, refugees when they arrive in the boats. That's what they're about. And this, both sides, you see, have very odd allies. Um, Haftar doesn't have the manpower really to do it or to take over the, the, the whole littoral, the whole coastline of, of, of Libya. So he's got some Salafist, although he was the great champion who stood up against ISIS. Sorry, I know it sounds getting very, very complicated, but the, the splinter fundamentalists he's had to make common cause with equally, which is the problem for the Italians, that the government of, uh, of in, in, in Tripoli of national accord, so-called, is full of militias whose main uh, livelihood is smuggling people and, frankly, dealing with out-and-out slavery. Okay, well, let's move on from Libya, but we'll stick with the theme of an embattled government attempting to stave off insurrection from angry militants who are probably supported by Russia and look at France. Later this evening, President Emmanuel Macron will address the nation, outlining his policy responses to his recent listening tour of the nation, which was itself a response to the protests of the Yellow Vest movement, a revolt which might not be exclusively comprised of angry middle-aged men who've been somewhat disappointed by life. It is not yet clear what Macron will promise, though it can only be hoped that he will not, as he did once before, address the concerns of the third estate while sitting at a solid gold desk in a big palace. Um, Joy, what what is the President likely to say this evening, do we think? Um, Well, poor President Macron, he basically got himself hired as this sort of great international, you know, uh, liberal figure. And then his country has reacted with a a sort of violence against his image. I mean, he didn't do himself any favours by styling himself as Jupiter and becoming very aloof. But at this point... But the French do this to all their presidents, though. They do, but, you know, he's he's come up with these sort of wonderful grand plans about European, European integration, you know, Paris Climate Accord, you know, environmentalism. And the country's just said, actually, we don't want that. Uh, What we'd like is... Um, to get rid of the fuel duties, which has now happened. We'd like more referendums. We'd like more local, um, uh, ter- kind of ter- essentially uh, local elections, local consultation. We'd like all these kind of ministers in their high up offices to actually come down and meet the people. And this is slightly uncomfortable. So he's going to have to have a blind of a speech today. But, you know, you'll see that he cannot do his grand European agenda. And you can also see that in the grand conversation, in the great survey he put to the people, the one thing he didn't talk about was Europe because it's too big a subject. It's all micropolitics tonight. Um, Robert, this coming weekend is Easter and there are large yellow jacket uh, protests planned or yellow vest protests planned. Uh, some people suggesting they will be the biggest and therefore probably the nastiest ever. Is, is he basically just going on air to say stuff in order to try and let the air out of what could be a, a fairly busy weekend for the gendarmes? He's got to do that. Uh, he's got a jacquerie, uh, a spontaneous explosion, because what is happening, as Joy 
pointed out, it, it's the sort of breakdown of social cohesion and community activity um, as a political or associative activity in the France Profonde, which is really upsetting people. You go to the, you know, the beautiful French countryside, the well-known towns and centres, unless it is, it's got high tech and something that is exportable, even the great agricultural centres now are very, very dead indeed. So that, that is the long term. I think it's letting gas out of the tyre, uh, which has a, a, a yellow jacket, to mix my metaphors, um, <laughs> uh, wrapped around it. But there's another thing coming up. There's a great beauty contest, which, of course, here in UK, we're missing the point of altogether, um, some, in some ways deliberately, so in other ways not. The upcoming European elections are going to be an extraordinary popularity referendum, but it's going to be a referendum about... I was, would like to say, but it's, it's too, too, too trite to say new politics. It's often a retread of old politics. And it's the resurgence of the, or the, the, the surgence of the populist left and popular, populist right, which you can read right across Europe. And thing, things like uh, En Marche and um, uh, uh, Macron really is going to do very, very badly out of this. And he has really misspoken and misstepped with the grand projet for Europe, an integrated Europe. How are you going to integrate Europe? What, what, what does it mean? And particularly as it's impossible because you can only make Europe integrate if you cut off half of it, and most of that half is below the Alps because you, I cannot see how any of his plans are going to work as long as you've got Italy, Spain, Portugal and Greece in it. So it's all looking very flaky for Macron uh, uh, at the moment. And he is, after all, a toff. He comes from the central schools, he's an anarchian, and he can't shed that image. Uh, Joy, what do you make of the calculation that President Macron is clearly making, though, and has made before by making those concessions you, you listed earlier and undertaking uh, his, his tour of town hall meetings? He's clearly decided that there's more to be gained by at least giving the impression of acknowledging the yellow vests and listening to them than there is by just telling them to quit whining and get back to work. Um, well, I think yes, but I, I can't think of such a sustained amount of uh, protest going on in France uh, in my memory. I mean, it's now been nearly six months. Even, of, even by French standards, Even by French remarkable. standards, there is not a cobblestone. <laughs> he comes out in yeah. the spring and goes away well before yeah. the autumn. But yeah. there is not a cobblestone left on the streets. It's yeah. going to go and go and go. And if he has tried to talk to them, he's actually failed. I and mean, I think they were talk, They talk about the grand debat being called the, the grand blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, so they've been very dismissive. And uh, the number of responses to it, it's only been about 1.5 million people have actually written in. So they can easily easily dismiss what has happened and said, well, actually, we just didn't really participate in this great conversation. We didn't make our views known. What we actually wanted is the confrontation. So is there, therefore, Robert, something to the suggestion that maybe he's he's trying to reason with the unreasonable and concede to those who are not interested in concessions? This is what I have myself long suspected about the Yellow Vests and about not dissimilar movements all over the world, really, that they're not so much interested in being heard uh, as they are just interested in making noise. Yes, there is a certain amount of that, but what uh, Macron... He's a good enough politician to realise he's, that he's there empowered by a fluke. And he's there because um, uh, uh, Marine Le Pen mis misstepped uh, in the last presidential elections and the goalist right was split. And that isn't going to go on forever. So where I think you're right, what I th 
think he is so uneasy about is making the transformation from the old politics because it was a cock-up in the old politics that brought him to power and embraced the new protests, the new single-issue movements. As you rightly depicted in your introduction, it is actually a coalition, I think, of a whole bunch of people who are there for single issues. Hmm. And actually, they can't decide amongst and they themselves. Can't decide themselves. And there's wonderful things about, should we raise the limit, speed limit? Should we lower the speed limit? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows? Um, Yes, it is. It, 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 it's a it's an interesting failure. I think that there's one thing which I, I don't know the polling on, but I would imagine a number of uh, French people have actually become intolerant of the uh, yellow vest, and so it's will, huge. Will, it's it's a huge it's huge. But the number of people who feel against, who feel strongly against it will be growing, yeah. and therefore Macron can draw some strength from that. But he he made that great mistake of cutting that wealth tax at the top, and he's refusing to reinstate it. And there's nothing that upsets. Yeah. A country where there's only sort of one percent paying this wealth tax. The idea that they have to that they get the kind of break nobody else does, and if that's his red line, I mean, it happened in this country as well. When you start taking that wealth tax down, everybody notices it. Yeah. Just as a final quick thought on this one, Robert, is there actually anything that Macron could imaginably say this evening that would cause the yellow vest movement or a plurality of the yellow vest movement to go, "Oh, okay, fair enough. Well, it's all off this weekend then." It's empathic leadership, isn't it? It's the whole thing. That it's that, you know, however strange, and the more historically you look at them, figures like Churchill and de Gaulle were, they could do, de Gaulle at his best could do Francais, Francaise, that order, you know, that I feel your pain, this is is the way it makes it work. It's very interesting. Um, He's not like Trump, but in the Trump era, the most successful politicians are the populists who say, I feel your anger and I, I'm as angry as you are. Macron can't do that. And that's, if only, and he would, he would have to, the, you know, the, the, whatever naturalistic uh, metaphor you have, the, sh- the snake would have to shake its skin, the leopard change its spots, but I just don't see it. I think he's a one-shot wonder. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Robert Fox and Joy Ladico. Coming up next, Finland has had an election, but it may be a while from having a government. Download the free Monocle 24 app today to tune in wherever in the world you happen to be. Whether you're catching up on the news on your daily commute, enjoying a little cultural nourishment during your morning run, or seeking some recipe inspiration around the kitchen table, the Monocle 24 app allows you to tune in live or download your favourite shows to enjoy later. Get started by downloading the Monocle 24 app today. Monocle 24, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Joy Ladiko and Robert Fox. Finland underwent a general election yesterday and for far from the first time in recent memory furnished the world with the spectacle of the citizens of a wealthy, orderly, secure and pleasant country voting in large numbers for a party whose pitch basically boils down to how terrible everything is. The far-right Finns party won 17.5% of the vote, coming a narrow second overall to the Social Democratic Party won 17.7% of the vote. Minor placings were filled out by the Centre Party, the Greens and the Left Alliance. Given that pretty much everyone has ruled out cooperating with the Finns party, assembling a plausible coalition might be tricky. Um, Joy, um, 
the Finn party, imaginatively named mm. though they are, the Finns rather, are big on anti-immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, foreign-born people currently constitute 2.7% of the population of Finland, and most of those are Swedes. How do you pitch anti-immigration as a line in a country which doesn't have any immigrants? Well, it, it's actually how it works the whole of Europe over. The, the, the anti-immigration line works most strongly when there is virtually no immigrants nearby and all you have is the fear of them and the minute they do start to arrive you know into any city center most people say absolutely fantastic have you tasted the swedish cinema <laughs> much better than ours um so yes i it was a, we what is it, we need to put up some borders um it's one of those I, every time i think of finland i think how many people when they are a refugee or they are thinking about relocating from within europe would say yeah, what I really want is cold, dark, snow, you know, dark. This is the thing, Finland, it, it, Finland which is, I reiterate, a delightful country, but it does not need borders. It just needs to tell people about its weather. It, yeah, and that's enough. It's enough to put them off entirely. Um, what I also like about the uh, the Finns party was that they were the true Finns party, and then they split. <laughs> um, so these are, I presume these are the untrue Finns party, the real... No, I mean, no it's it, the, I don't, this is the Finns true party, or the, I, yeah. I, I don't, I mean, how, how very unlike a cranky populist movement to split on obscurant so what I what I uh, what, what seat I know, reasons. but the the, the the point about the, the the true Finns, which is when they came second in the last election, they were incorporated into the coalition, and that was the idea. The idea was to try and neutralise them. And when in Sweden next door, when the Sweden Democrats did well, there was a kind of great conversation saying, "Well, should we try and do what the Finns did?" Because that seemed to at least take the, the fire out of that uh, particular group. They then. The Finns, the true Finns, then split into the true Finns and the untrue Finns, or the real Finns, or whatever it is. I can't believe and it's not Finns. And we're back yeah. into a state of opposition. Um, but the numbers in those elections are very telling. Which is again, this sort of the the mainstream parties keep drifting down in support. So the, these far right parties, these populist parties, often don't get to twenty percent, um, which means they aren't the kind of uh, the, the king. The, they aren't the king, but they are do, do become the kingmaker. They're often second. But when you see the major parties hemorrhaging support, suddenly they're within a whisper of power. Is, is Robert actually possibly the more interesting story here? Not so much the, the hefty vote for the far-right Finns, but the actually hefty vote on the other side of the spectrum, that there, there has been yet another desertion of the centre ground by a European electorate. Yeah, the Greens went up by 3%, which is mm. quite, a, quite a big move, quite a big shift. I, I think what Joy was saying, I absolutely go with it. And, it, you know, when you look next door to the pressures in Sweden, where there has been an enormous arrival over the past 10, 10, 10 years of people. And, and it's been part of the culture, political culture in in um, Sweden. Sweden. Um, Greece actually comes to mind because as long as I've been in journalism, it's been a haven. And in fact, it was particularly a haven for the Greeks during, during the colonels. What I, I don't know about Finland, how much, but I know in, in, in Sweden, which is very delicate, there is an internal racist element too because the laps and the minorities suffer. But... Two things that arise from 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 from, from uh, this discussion is that you're absolutely right that the thing is absolutely spreading to left and right, and this is a, a phenomenon that is hap- happening across Europe. And I will come to a, a, a great story, which was missed last month, which was the Dutch local elections, which shapes the Senate, where a totally new populist uh, party, the, uh, the Party for Top, uh, Democratic Reform, run by a man called uh, Thierry Baudet, a name 
by the way, I think we've got to get used to. He was a philosopher, wrote uh, a book 10 years ago, extremely popular, very popular in the United States, The End to National Frontiers. And he is the most articulate of the kind of trope that the Finns party came out with. And it's, we've got to look after our old people, we've got to look after our old ways. And one of the things where the right is drawn together, and here in the UK we really haven't spotted it, is not quite full-blown climate change denial, but climate change. It's not the Trump thing that it's a hoax, but it's, it's a snare and a deception. We needn't take any notice of it because we really don't do all that much. It was a very, very powerful element in the Finns party platform. It's what, um, to move it, the person who's most articulate about this tendency is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Republican candidate. Climate change legislation will take away burgers and your pickup truck from you. <laughs> and there was, and um, the, 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 the Finns consciously uh, adopted that slogan and said it's going to take beer and good so good finished sausage uh, away from you. But this is amazingly strong um, uh, at the moment. For very little gain, it's going to ruin your economy. And forget about and, tomorrow. And this actually is where the whole Gilets Jaunes uh, movement yeah. starts in France as well. And this is one of my favourite sub subjects of conversation, which is environmentalism, environmentalism is the next big battleground. It's one of those uh, ideas that's filled with incredibly long words, statistics, UN climate goals, which has absolutely no relation to people's lives. And it's taken as an absolute given that societies want to change and become more ecological, more green. But in fact, it tends to affect the um, little people at the bottom most, and that's farmers and that's people who want to drive their pickup trucks. Well, finally tonight, uh, to sport, or at least golf. Uh, the celebrated golfist Tiger Woods won his fifth Masters tournament at the weekend, fully 14 years since his fourth. It is a comeback for reasons both admirable and arguably less so, in that Woods has had to recover from injury and surgery, but has also had to overcome an amount of obstacles of the self-deployed variety. Um... Joy, when, when people have bought into this and got excited about Tiger Woods winning this thing, which of the things do you think is driving the excitement? Is that he has come back from injuries uh, or, or that he has sort of been on a what Americans like to think of or describe as a personal journey? Um, I think it's probably the personal journey. To be honest, I hadn't actually noticed Tiger Wolf. Uh, Tiger Woods had stopped playing golf because I'm not a huge golf fan. But he was clearly on the front pages quite a lot, so I sort of quickly scanned them to find out what had happened. And you know, well done him. He's cleaned up his personal life, which was the most fantastic, salacious story when that <laughs> scandal broke. Uh, the back injury passed me by entirely. But also, he was a humble man. Uh, you know, who was who was who, who won in the kind of sort of most kind of you know it was almost like he was asking forgiveness from the golf course from the audience from everybody else my favorite take on it was from the guardian who wrote that uh, tiger woods is the absolute antithesis to donald trump as a golf player and this was somebody who was a biographer of donald trump who'd followed him around the golf course he had a turbocharged buggy so he would always get way ahead of his opponent and then move the ball kick kick their ball out of the way, do something difficult. And Tiger Woods was sort of the spirit of the honest man back on the golf course. 
that obviously... See, the, the, the fact that Donald Trump cheats fabulously at golf is, to, is to my mind, the only redeeming aspect <laughs> of, of his character. Any, any, anything, anything to make the game go faster, <laughs> I would be in favour of. If, if in, frankly, circumstances which are unimaginable to me, I ever found myself trapped on a golf course. Um, Ro- Robert, do we extend people in the public eye an undue amount of applause, uh, and this is me flagrantly inserting a personal prejudice into the question, when having publicly and obviously behaved for a certain period like a jackass, they then decide to stop acting like a jackass. And weirdly, we seem to applaud that much more than we applaud the person who never acted like a jackass in the first place. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do please elaborate. I haven't helped you. No, we, we, we love it. And redemption stories, yeah, it's so cheesy and, and we love it, you know, that uh, whether it's ballroom dancing or whatever contests and people falling apart and falling in love or, 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 or whatever. But actually, the heroic returns. You don't get it so much in sport because, of course, at this high level, you do so much. I mean, he's done so much damage to his body. I think he won't make old bones. When he's broken his back, he's done goodness knows what. But it's people like fabulous singers who who have had mortal illnesses. And I'd name one, um, Jose Carreras, one of the three tenors. And it's it was grit and determination and sheer willpower that, 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 that got him back. But there was a wonderful Danish uh, tenor before the World War called Axel Scholz, who had the most beautiful voice. You can get him on, on, on YouTube. And he absolutely refused during the day of the occupation of Denmark to sing any German leader at, whatsoever. And he stopped and he had a physical breakdown. But he did come back, not as a tenor, as a baritone. He wasn't quite as good, but that was real moral willpower. Uh, again, in sport, I think the only one that I can think of, and he was a real brain, and his brain was better than his physical capacity as a sportsman, was Michael Brearley, really taking a disastrous English cricket team and making it absolutely a, a, a world-beater. And now he's while, a master in psychology, isn't he? You while, know? while barely being able to bat himself. No, absolutely. He, uh, no, he couldn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Joy, do you have a, a favourite comeback, yeah. either from the worlds of sport or since we seem to have broadened it out into that realm, opera? Well, um, uh, uh, opera is also not one of my specialist <laughs> subjects. Um, yeah. I always, I mean, I, I was not uh, young enough. Uh, I was not old. I'm not old enough to see this, but I always love the retelling of the story of Muhammad Ali and the rumble in the jungle, yeah. mainly because it of Norman Mailer. Um, but I also like that kind of sleeping elephant metaphor, which I use for a lot of people with lots of friends going, oh, I've got this problem, I've got this problem, which is just absorb, take the blows, take the blows. It'll all be fine in the end. Look at uh, Muhammad Ali. And they all say, what? And I say, just go and watch the documentary. Well, on that note of moral uplift, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Robert Fox and Joy Ladico, thank you for joining us at Midori House. It was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Nick Manise. Our studio manager was Cassie Galpin. Music next at 1900. It's the Monocle Culture Show with Robert Bound. There's more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House is back at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>